KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. That is the opening music from The Adventures of Robin Hood. And I'm here sitting under the twinkling stars of the Museum of Photographic Arts Cinema, speaking with Miguel Rodriguez of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival about a film we both love, The Adventures of Robin Hood. And we are part of the film geeks at the Digital Gym Cinema. And we are expanding to a second venue, which is the Museum of Photographic Arts, also known as MOPA. And this is a gorgeous cinema, and we thought it would be a fun place to record our podcast all about a film that we are showing on Friday, July 8th, which is The Adventures of Robin Hood, starring Errol Flynn. So we are here in this gorgeous cinema about to celebrate this movie. And Miguel, what is your first memory of seeing The Adventures of Robin Hood? Very sadly, my first memory of this film was on a black and white television. (laughs) Oh my God. So my first memory, I was very young. I had already been familiar with the Disney cartoon, Robin Hood. You know something, Robin, I was just wondering, are we good guys or bad guys? You know, I mean, uh, are Robin the rich to feed the poor? Rob? That's a naughty word. We never rob. We just sort of borrow a bit from those who can afford it. Borrow? Boy, are we in debt. I was completely shocked to discover that Robin Hood was not a fox. But uh, the scene that really sticks in my mind is right at the beginning where Robin Hood bursts into the royal hall where (laughs) Prince John is having a banquet with a buck around his shoulders that he killed illegally. You know, you should really teach Gisborne hospitality. I no sooner enter his castle doors there with a piece of meat than his starving servants try to snatch it from me. You should feed them, Gisborne. They'll work better. With the compliments of your royal brother, King Richard, God bless him. By my faith, but you're a bold rascal. Robin, I like you. I'm gratified, Your Highness. I don't think Gisborne shares that sentiment, however. Mm, it does look sad. <laughs> and just the, the, the moxie of that character at that moment, I've never forgotten it. That has one of my favorite lines of all time. So I'm going to play this clip from that scene. Bring Sir Robin food at once, do you hear? Such impudence must support a mighty appetite. True enough, Your Highness. We Saxons have little to fatten on by the time your tax gatherers are through. Be seated, gentlemen. No need to stand on ceremony on my account. So you think you're overtaxed, eh? Overtaxed, overworked, and paid off with a knife, a club, or a rope. Why, you speak treason. Fluently. I advise you to curb that wagging tongue of yours. It's a habit I've never formed, Your Grace. I think there's a little of Errol Flynn in Han Solo. I think that that attitude is totally what we see in Harrison Ford's performance of Han Solo. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I think that's an archetype, you know, that goes back to like Achilles. You know, you've got this kind of brash, you know, Achilles was a little bit more of a jerk, but, <laughs> but just someone who doesn't 
there's no fear to just flaunt themselves in the face of, of danger. And, and that scene, I mean, Robin Hood is one person surrounded by enemies and he doesn't, he just bursts in. He's got this huge smile on his face and is happy go lucky and is larger than life. And, and it's kind of idiotic, but he doesn't care. It's great. He's so damn cocky. Yeah, he's so cocky. <laughs> the first time I saw, I have my father to thank for my love of classic cinema. And he took me and my sister to go see The Adventures of Robin Hood on a kind of big screen. I saw it for the first time at a place called the Cinema Leo on Garnett in Pacific Beach. It was a place where you used to lie down to watch movies. And there was like these headrests and you would lie down to watch films. I think it was on a double bill with either Arsenic and Old Lace or the Marx Brothers. But I got to see The Adventures of Robin Hood on a big screen in full Technicolor. And I totally fell in love with Errol Flynn. I think I was about, I was in elementary school. And I know that I was consumed by him. I bought a book about him. I put up posters of him. I bought the soundtracks to the movies. You're in a pretty big club. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And he really had this spark. I, I mean, he kind of fell into acting. He was extremely good looking. He was athletic. He was able to fall into these swashbuckling roles very easily. But he really had, if you want to call it that it quality, he really had that spark that made him connect with audiences. I think uh, bringing up Han Solo is, is appropriate because there was something about Errol Flynn and this and Captain Blood and some of his other films. It's a very contemporary male hero. He doesn't come off as somewhat passe like contemporary audiences might find, say, Clark Gable. It, uh, Errol Flynn doesn't have that. He has something that is timeless, and I think that's what still draws people to him. Well, I think a quality that always makes people a little more timeless is this sense of rebelliousness, mm. that notion that you're not fitting in, you don't care what anybody else thinks. I, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why the Marx Brothers hold up so well, is that <laughs> it's a pure sense of anarchy and that they're always against the establishment. And oh, yeah. always being against the establishment somehow, I think, gives you this timeless quality. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. I'd love to see uh, Errol Flynn and Groucho Marx go together against Prince John and someone else. Rufus T. Firefly and, and uh, Robin Hood. That would be a great pairing. <laughs> buddy, buddy movie. <laughs> One of the things about Robin Hood that I think sticks in most people's minds, if you've seen it on a big screen or in color, is it was this absolutely gorgeous color. This was the three-strip Technicolor process. And the color just leaps off the screen. Warner Brothers at this time was known for a lot of these gangster films, mm -hmm. which were black and white and gritty. So this was kind of a change of pace for them. Yeah. So Warner Brothers completely changed course. And, and Errol Flynn was a big part of that. They were willing to bank on him because he had made them some money from his swashbuckling films before this one. And so they decided, you know, we're going to really cash in. And you're right. You know, they were known for their low budget films, uh, making money, but spending little. But this one, I think, was over two million dollars, which at the time, you know, that's like a Marvel Universe movie now. <laughs> and they pulled out all the stops. They've got this marvelous score which we'll talk about. And yeah, this this fairly new three-strip Technicolor process, the the bold colors, it's, it's out of this world. It, it really is fantastical when you're watching it on the screen. I mean, seeing Patrick Knowles as Will Scarlet in, in just like 
blazoning red. <laughs> it's There's nothing like it. I think it lends the fantasy quality to it. There's a great meme going around the internet now because movies right now try so hard to be so realistic. Or, And uh, the meme is, I don't want reality. I want magic. And uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood provides magic. And that's what it is. This is something that you will only get within the four walls of the frame of the movie. And, and that's something that is so exciting. And Technicolor at the time, you know, it, it was it was new, but it was, uh, so it was very difficult to do. It was very difficult to master with, you know, literally three strips of film that are basically compiled on top of one another. And so in order for that to really work with cameras, the lighting had to be, bla- you know, just like the surface of the sun on these actors' faces and just hundreds of... Basically, you could power a whole city on what it took to light these movies in the 30s. And uh, and Robin, uh, the adventures of Robin Hood really paved the way for something like The Wizard of Oz in 1939, you know, that just this was the standard. Suddenly, a standard was set. You have really this film to thank for that. When we do have the Technicolor films that would come later, this was the herald of that, I think. And one of the reasons why the film remains so vivid in terms of its color is the three-strip Technicolor process literally had a different color in each strip. Mm -hmm. So it meant that for preserving the films, it was easy to maintain those colors, whereas later films, I remember seeing a comparison between like Adventures of Robin Hood and Lawrence of Arabia that Mm -hmm. was made almost 30 years later, and the Lawrence of Arabia prints were fading and getting this magenta tone that was hard to restore. Yeah, because it was one strip with all the colors in it, whereas you could um, uh, archive each color individually Mm -hmm. with the older three-strip color. So yeah, that is kind of an ironic little twist is that uh, the more archaic form lent itself to archiving better than uh, what would come later. And I do remember seeing that film in color. And what possibly adds to the color is the fact that this, it was supposed to be in England, but it was shot <laughs> here in California in Chico Park. At, and I believe it was towards the fall or, or later part of the year. And they actually ended up painting the grass mm-hmm. to make it look more English, a little brighter green. Yeah, I, I always thought of the, uh, the in Alice in Wonderland, the, the card soldiers painting the roses red. <laughs> Uh, that, see, that kind of stuff, no one would do that anymore. <laughs> that's, that's such a, a wild thing to, to paint the grass. And they made fake trees. And uh, appropriately, it was shot also in the areas that they now call Sherwood Forest because that's where they shot, shot the first Douglas Fairbanks version. On that note, I did say that I saw this for the first time in black and white. And um, seeing it in color for the first time must have been... <laughs> I must have been a teenager. It was literally years later because this is before it was as easy to see movies. It was like seeing it again for the first time, but it it was one of those knock your socks off moments. It was not seeing a movie. It was experiencing and and being transported to this uh, fantasy Sherwood Forest and fantasy England. It's like opening a storybook. And I think that's why it endures. I think that's why people go to see it. It's an event. This is the event film, you know? I mean, ultimately, people talk about, you know, superhero movies are taking over Hollywood now, which isn't far from the truth. But, I mean, it's not like it's new. 
This is like, this is a superhero movie. Honestly, cinema has always been, in America especially, mm. a place for escape. I mean, people wanted to go to the movies to get away from their dull jobs or the problems that they had. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the cinema did so well during the Depression, is people mm. wanted to find some place to get away. And what better place to escape to than the forest of Sherwood? <laughs> With those arrows flying past, with the great sound and and the amazing chemistry and romance between uh, Maid Marian and Robin Hood. And then, of course, you know, for us Universal Horror fans, you get to see both Uno O'Connor and Claude Rains. And, I mean, the cast in this is ridiculous. Yeah. There, you can, it, it's a true ensemble cast, and everyone carries the film. I mean, as much as Errol Flynn is is such a dynamic actor and, and someone to watch, that doesn't mean that the side characters are just background. They're not. Everybody has got something in there. I mean, Eugene Pallet as Friar Tuck is absolutely hilarious. If you're a robber, you'll get nothing from me. I'm a Colonel Fry and vowed to poverty. <laughs> if this is poverty, I'll gladly share it with you. And that's what you are doing. Give me back my mutton joint. Not so close, my ponderous one. I'd have a word with you. Well? I live in the forest with a few score good fellows who have everything in life save spiritual guidance. And no merit but one. What's that? We're outlaws. And since we're all newborn to the Greenwood, we need someone to do our christenings for us. So, we've chosen you. Not I. They've probably all got your taking ways. Well, of course. Ah. But you'll love him, one and all. Alan Hale Sr. is uh, little, as little John. What's your name, friend? John Little. What's yours? Robin. Not Robin of Loxley. Why? Then I'm right glad I fell in with you. It was he who did the falling in. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to see what you were made of. And I did. <laughs> I hope you'll not hold it against me. On the contrary, I love a man that can best me. Well, this is an appropriate time to mention that the original actor they had selected for Robin Hood was, believe it or not, James Cagney. Little James Cagney. <laughs> can you imagine what that film would have been like? Uh, I hope that they would have him dance, but it would be a completely different movie. Um, I don't... Oh, man, yeah... This is one of those moments where, you know, if we lived in a parallel universe, I'd be very interested in actually seeing that movie because... Well, because Cagney had his own charm, but... It was different. But yeah. after seeing Errol Flynn do this, you cannot imagine anyone else taking on that role. Well, I mean, that's true. And in fact, there are always these... Maybe it's because it's just one of the first, but it's not one of the first. But when people think Robin Hood, they tend to think Errol Flynn. It's like when people think Dracula, they tend to think Bela Lugosi. Or it's iconic. I mean, I, that's an overused term now. But I think Errol Flynn as Robin Hood is definitely iconic. I mean, when Disney made their cartoon version with that fox, it was definitely Errol Flynn. <laughs> and, and you know, I know we we're going to talk about this later. But one thing I find fascinating is in the '90s they made Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, with Kevin Costner, and then Mel Brooks parodied that film with Robin Hood men in tights and all of the jokes were definitely based on prince of thieves but the art direction production design character uh, it was clearly carrie always was supposed to be uh errol flynn the costumes were supposed to be like the errol flynn version so even though you know mel brooks is going to make this movie making fun of prince of thieves the look of it 
is going back to 1938. I find that fascinating. Mentioning that James Cagney was originally going to be Robin Hood, Errol Flynn stepped into the role of Captain Blood, the film Mm. in 1935 that kind of catapulted him to fame, and he stepped into the shoes of Robert Dinot, who was Mr. Chips and Goodbye, Mr. <laughs> Chips. And again, you think about this and you go, wow, if they had made that movie with him, with Mr. Chips. it wouldn't, because the other thing that, that Errol Flynn brings to the role that, that Cagney and Robert Dinot do not have in quite the same way is this sex appeal and charisma. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, Cagney's got this kind of, uh, he's got a different charisma, but you're right. He's not the, uh, necessarily the sex tiger kind of, of, he's a little bit, uh, I don't, I don't know how to say this without insulting Cagney, but it's not the same as Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn has that, um, real, uh, debonair quality that Cagney doesn't necessarily have. Some of the ladies out there might disagree with me, but, uh, you know, he was kind of, this small guy, kind of this, uh, he's got that mean look on his face half the time, even when he's dancing. And, uh, uh, every time I picture Cagney as Robin Hood, he's talking like a gangster. Yeah. So, <laughs> Get the Tommy gun out. Yeah, exactly. Well, Split the arrow with the Tommy gun. <laughs> well, and just to briefly get back to the Technicolor, I think that the Technicolor in this was so vivid and made such an impression on me that... I seem to remember Captain Blood and the Seahawk in color, Mm. despite the fact that they were both black and white. But Errol Flynn is so fixed in my memory in this bold, vivid color that I seem to be able to, like, force that memory on these black and white movies. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's (laughs) right. Uh, Did we see the Seahawk at TCM Film Festival? And and I remember sitting there. It's like, oh, my gosh, this is in black and white. I completely forgot for the same reason. It's kind of like when you watch a foreign film that's subtitled. But later on, you remember it and people are speaking English in your memory. It's one of those weird kind of brain tricks it plays on you. And I think in this case, you know, the language of Errol Errol Flynn is the language of Technicolor. You have no choice but to see any of his films (laughs) with, you know, with those rosy cheeks. (laughs) We brought up cast and one cast member is celebrating a birthday this month. Mm -hmm. Olivia de Havilland turns 100. She has to be one of the most lovely Maid Marians ever committed to film. Yeah, she has that quality where she doesn't have to say anything. The camera just closes up on her, gets a, you get a close up on her face and it's like looking at, you know, the Venus de Milo or the Mona Lisa or something. Her face is a painting in these shots in the film. It's just magical. She's got a magical face. She's always got that headdress on. And so her face is framed with these colorful headdresses and the makeup that they have (laughs) with the Technicolor is also uh, kind of magical as well. So the costuming, it's the mix of costuming, the mix of those huge eyes that she has. And, you know, she plays kind of a, a very dignified, at times silent character observing some of these things around her. And I think one of the her shining moments in this film is, you know, she starts off repulsed by Robin Hood and his band of merry men. You speak of loyalty. Yes, why not? I suppose you and your band of cutthroats intend to send this treasure to Richard. You wouldn't dream of keeping it yourselves. Friends! What shall we do with this treasure? Divide it amongst ourselves? Hold it for Richard! It belongs to the king! 
convinced? I, uh, I may have been hasty, but why you, a knight, should live here like an animal in the forest, robbing, killing, outlaw? Are you really interested in learning why I turned outlaw? Or are you afraid of the truth? Or of me, perhaps? I'm afraid of nothing, least of all of you. Good. And come with me. And over the course of the film, starts to see what he's really doing. And you can literally see moments where her, without her saying anything, it's just her face, where her opinion is shifting. And that is brilliant. It's such good acting on her, on her part. She really shines. Well, it's interesting that as they remade Robin Hood's in later decades and were trying to turn Maid Marian into more of this kind of feminist icon or um, a character that was more active in a contemporary sense, like, oh, we can't have Maid Marian in a contemporary film just be sitting there passive, waiting to be rescued. We'll make her into a woman of action and, you know, have her maybe engage in sword play or whatever. But Going back to Olivia de Havilland, without having to do any of that, she is such a strong character. And she has her moments where, you know, Prince John brings her up on treason, and she has this lovely speech. Are you not ashamed, my Lady Marion? Yes, I am, bitterly. But it's a shame that I'm a Norman, after seeing the things my fellow countrymen have done to England. At first, I wouldn't believe. Because I was a Norman, I wouldn't let myself believe that the horrors you inflicted on the Saxons weren't just and right. I know now why you tried so hard to kill this outlaw whom you despised. It's because he was the one man in England who protected the helpless against a lot of beasts who were drunk on human blood. And now you intend to murder your own brother. It's such a powerful scene, even though this is a pop culture, popcorn movie. She still has this moment that's very real and makes her character quite strong without having to you know, engage in what, what nowadays we would consider like, oh, well, you know, she's just a damsel in distress getting rescued. But she had a really strong character. Yeah, people who, who write her off as a damsel in distress character, even though she is someone who has to get rescued, uh, in terms of plot line, are just not paying attention. Because, you know, I brought up her dignity. And in that speech that you're talking about, that's a key moment of, of dignity. You know, I think often these days we confuse strength with someone who can grab a knife and, you know, round kick someone in the face. You know, that, that, that has its place and it's cool and all. We all love like our Buffy the Vampire Slayers and stuff. But, the, you know, strength has different faces. And Maid Marian, played by Olivia de Havilland in the 1938 film Adventures in Robin Hood, is not a cardboard cutout. Mm -hmm. She, you know, she's not crying and, and uh, bereft of any kind of depth. She's definitely got a character. One of my favorite scenes in this is between Olivia de Havilland and her lady-in-waiting, of played by Uno O'Connor. Uh, I want to play a clip from their scene where Uno O'Connor is trying to find out if Maid Marian might be in love with Robin Hood. He is different from anyone I've ever known. He's, well, he's brave and he's reckless, and yet he's, yet he's gentle and kind. He's not brutal like, tell me. When you are in love, is it, well, is it hard to think of anybody but, but one person? Yes, indeed, my lady, and sometimes there's a bit of trouble sleeping. I know, but it's a nice kind of not sleeping. Yes, and it affects your appetite, too. Not that I've noticed it's done that to you, except when he was in the dungeon waiting to be hanged. And does it make you want to be with him all the time? Yes. And when he's with you, your legs as weak as water. And tell me, my lady, 
when he looks at you. Do you feel any kind of pricky feeling like goosey pimples running all up and down your spine? Oh, then there's not a doubt of it. Okay, goose pimply feeling is a line that I have remembered for my entire life. <laughs> you love Una O'Connor as well. Yeah. What is it about her that you find so appealing? You know, Una O'Connor was kind of a ham, but like, but she's just, it, she's very polarizing. There are people who just can't stand her, but I just love her. And, uh, and I think it's because she is larger than life. She does not shy away from making her voice louder than anyone else's <laughs> on camera. She's this tiny, older, you know, she's one of these older women uh, that, and you don't, you see few of those in classic golden age Hollywood. Uh, but she was able to do that and, and play off of that, partly because she was just fun. She was just hilarious. You know, uh, a lot of people remember her from um, Bride of Frankenstein or uh, The Invisible Man, both directed by James Whale. And he thought she was hysterical, so he stuck her all over the place. And I think, uh, you know, the people who share his sense of humor, also known as smart people, <laughs> love Uno O'Connor. You know, and this, you know, a lady-in-waiting character um, can just be, you know, set dressing. And Una made herself not set dressing. She's one of... It's like I was saying before, all these side characters, even Maid Marian's, you know, lady. It, she didn't have to take over the screen as much as she did, but she did. And she, you know, she ends up having, I don't want to give too much away you know, for any of you who haven't seen it, but she becomes, she has her own little side role to play later on. So, she, and she's got that great face and she has her own big old eyes and, and her voice. And I don't know. I just love her. <laughs> We've talked about the kind of the good guy characters mm. in this. One of the things that makes this film so enjoyable is the rivalry or the nemesis that he has to face in Basil Rathbone. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. In most of the stories of Robin Hood, the Sheriff of Nottingham was always kind of his nemesis. This film kind of tweaked that a little bit. Basil Rathbone plays Sir Guy of Gisborne. He is kind of the main nemesis. Sheriff of Nottingham kind of becomes a, a slightly ridiculous figure in the hands of Melville Cooper. But this rivalry between the two of them mm. was fabulous. Could I upset your plans? You've come to Nottingham once too often. When this is over, my friend, there'll be no need for me to come again. Yeah, I think the I keep bringing up the Disney cartoon version because I think the Sheriff Nottingham <laughs> that is definitely based on Melville Cooper, uh, kind of this buffoonish, buffoonish character. But uh, Basil Rathbone, I think part of the reason, well, first of all, Basil Rathbone just has a lot of screen presence as a villain. You know, I know him as, as Sherlock Holmes, so it's interesting seeing him on the other side of the of the of the evil road that way. But I think that the rivalry was also in real life too, because Basil Rathbone was a a fencer and he had to have these amazing swashbuckling sword fighting scenes with Errol Flynn and Rathbone was just a better fencer and so I think there was a little bit of a friendly competition there especially since Rathbone had to lose I just feel like that you can feel that come off the screen in a really awesome way to make it more exciting he's so slimy looking you know he's got that the face of a villain he's got that long nose and and squinty eyes and he's just you know mean he's just a mean guy and <laughs> he's one of the it's just one of those swashbuckling movies where when the hero is sword fighting the villain 
you actually want the hero to win. I feel like that doesn't happen very much. Sometimes you end up rooting for the villain. But in this one, you're like, yo, Robin, you know, I, I'm just getting excited now just thinking about it. And we're not even watching the movie. Hats off to Basil Rathbone for that, for giving you someone you love to hate. Well, and I think the rivalry also came from their different approaches to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Basil Rathbone was very professional and very polished. Yeah. Yes. And, and Errol Flynn kind of, he relied on being utterly charming and so I I think he was known for not memorizing his lines quite as much and not coming quite as prepared (laughs) to the set. Such an American. But he's not American. (laughs) Oh that's right. Shit. He was born in Tasmania. Well still not British. Not British British. No but he. uh, (laughs) Not an uppity tight uh, stiff upper lip Brit like Rathbone. (laughs) No no no. Yeah so I think that also added to their to the the chemistry they had on screen as being these antagonists. And also on the side of the villains is Claude Rains, who we've screened a number of his universal horror films. He was the Invisible Man. And he makes a deliciously slimy Prince John. That means that you, my friends, must collect in taxes not two gold marks in the pound, but three. And the money is to be turned over to me. Why do you, Your Highness? King Richard appointed Longchamp's regent. I've kicked Longchamp out. From now on, I am regent of England. Well, confound it, what are you all gobbling at? Is it so strange that I decide to rule when my brother is a prisoner? Who's to say I shouldn't? Oh, he's great. I love him because, I mean, Claude Rains is one of the greatest actors who ever lived. And in Prince John, he doesn't... He's not this kind of villain who, um, you know, he's not like Sauron in Lord of the Rings, who's this all-powerful, really intimidating villain. He's this mousy little, like, pest, you know? He's got tough guys around him, but he's just a smarmy, mousy pest who, who uh, you know, whose brother is off at the Crusades, so he's going to take over and... And he's going to try to take over to the best of his ability. But honestly, I mean, he just kind of wants to like sit and eat lots of food and drink lots of wine and have fun and rule people. And <laughs> Well, in a way, he's like this contemporary character because to me, he's kind of like this opportunistic politician. Yeah, oh, that's exactly what he is. He's an opportunistic politician. And, and anybody else be damned. He, all he cares about is himself and having a good time. And... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and but and he also doesn't like when anyone challenges him either. So so there's that too. This is a, an action adventure film and it's a swashbuckling film. But he's not the one you're going to see really sword fighting Robin Hood. You know he he's just um, he's the man behind the curtain and he's got that little smile. Oh his hair, the wig they have him in too. It's just perfect. Um, Again, I have to bring up the Disney cartoon version only because I feel like they were just animating this Errol (laughs) Flynn film because they have Prince John in that too. And he's a thumb sucker and he's he's completely just this ridiculous. uh, He's like a child who wants all the toys. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. You mentioned how this is a swashbuckler and an action film. This film, Behind the Scenes, has a little bit of an interesting story in the sense that it was started with director William Keeley, mm-hmm. who got along very well with Errol Flynn, who had directed Technicolor before, which was kind of a big deal for them because this was 
doing a Technicolor film was very expensive and they wanted to make sure that things ran smoothly, but he did not remain the director of this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Curtiz eventually came on. And Curtiz is, was kind of a golden boy, but uh, but why did they need to bring him on in the first place? Is uh, There are two reasons. Keeley uh, was not so hot at the action scenes. The, you know, the brass at Warner Brothers didn't feel like it was heart-pounding enough in those scenes. But uh, probably the biggest reason is, is pure money. They were behind schedule. They were losing money every day. They were going over budget. And that, I mean, if there's anything that gets a director fired, that's it. And so they replaced him with Curtiz, who can basically do anything. <laughs> and, uh, but they do share, thankfully, they do share co-directing credits because um, they both actually, both of them offered their own aspect to make this movie great. I mean, there are things uh, that Keeley was able to offer. Um, first of all, his experience shooting Technicolor and, uh, and some of the technical qualities, some of the romance qualities. And then Curtiz was able to really marry that with all the action and all the fun and all the bombast that we have in the film. So I think, you know, that it's a true uh, co-directing, a, co- a true co-direction film, even though they didn't really work together, per se. Well, and their styles were very different. Mm-hmm. Curtiz was known to be very dictatorial on the set. Which is what helps them stay, stay under budget. budget. <laughs> That's why they want it. I mean, you know, he, he is one of those people who could... Uh, the man was a, a workhorse. He was he was basically a working stiff. He was like, okay, yeah, I'm an artist, but really I'm, I'm doing the job. And he knew how to do it. And he had directed Errol Flynn before. He's the one who helped him become so popular with Captain, Captain Blood. Blood. So he knew, he knew what he was doing, although he and Flynn did not really get along well. And I think part of that was their approaches. He was very much this professional, dictatorial director on the set, and Flynn was a little more easygoing, maybe. <laughs> I think Flynn attacked him on set at, at one point. Uh, I have heard that, because <laughs> I, the, the story I had heard involved the fact that uh, in order to add a little more uh, uh, energy or, or uh, excitement to the fight scenes, he had instructed one of the stunt people to remove the guard that was on the sword. <laughs> oh my God, that and, would get him in so much and, trouble. Uh, yeah, and uh, I think Errol <laughs> Flynn had gotten cut or something, and so he, I think he had gone up to him and like either pointed the sword or shook him or something to say, like, so, what's this for, like, how's this for excitement? Oh my gosh, <laughs> Errol Flynn would have been able to cream him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah, yeah, I think I heard something similar to that. That's just amazing. You know, some of these stories you hear these days about the lack of safety on set. Oh, yeah. And this film reportedly used, I think, more stuntmen than anyone had up until that time. And there was a lot of there were a lot of stunts in this mm-hmm. film. And speaking of stunts, let's talk about Howard Hill, who was oh, yeah. the expert archer who actually split the arrow. I mean, we have CGI now to do all this stuff. And the fact that he does it for real is so amazing. Yeah, you know, they they had to do that a couple of times to get it right. Apparently, you know, one arrow was made of a different material than the other. But all of these little aspects aside, he was he was a genius. I mean, not only was he an expert archer, and he was their um, consultant on all the archery stuff. He was also the one who helped the sound designers make the sound of the arrows going through the air, which is an incredible sound. He split Philip's arrow. The finger wins, he wins. 
which you can really only appreciate in the theater unless you're wearing headphones. But he was also the one, speaking of stunt art people, who literally shot <laughs> people with arrows. Uh, they would have, this is part of the reason they had so many stunt people. I mean, Aside from the fact that it's a huge cast, you've got armies and, and castles and all that stuff, a merry band and everything. But, uh, you know, you have people getting shot with arrows and it's, you know, these poor schmoes with balsa wood strapped to their chests, literally getting shot with arrows. They were paid $150 per arrow. Um <laughs> <laughs> Some of them were shot with three arrows. Uh, yeah, but it was it was Hill who was doing all the shooting, so they trusted him. <laughs> well, this is funny coming after that we just screened Throne of Blood here in San Diego, and at the end scene, Toshiro Mifune is shot with real arrows from a team mm-hmm. of archers, not merely one, <laughs> one arrow at a time. But these stunt people... <laughs> were subjected to some amazing things. I have to think that Kurosawa um, was watching The Adventures of Robin Hood and was like, I can top that. (laughs) I'll use 300 arrows instead of three. (laughs) And talking about the sound design for that, we were fortunate enough to be at the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival when sound designer Ben Burt was Mm -hmm. talking about the creation of the sound and how he actually went in and tried to recreate it and find out what was done and I, I think he's used that sound in the Star Wars movies because he loves it so much. What was amazing about that presentation is it really keys you in onto what a challenge they had in 1937 I guess it would have been when they were making the film to get that sound because because Ben Burt was having trouble he was really <laughs> having a hard time finding that exact sound and it, I mean it, it sounds like a missile going right through your ear it's such I don't know that's what it's supposed to be but um, it's it's such a unique and exhilarating sound it's like oh here comes death you know and uh, and hearing Mr. Burt talk about the moment of triumph, you know, was really good. But I forgot exactly all the rigmarole they had to go through in different rooms, different arrows, getting the feathers right. Everything contributed to the perfect sound. And as we're on the topic of sound, let's talk about Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who created the amazing soundtrack to this. God! I mean, this is a swashbuckling film. You need the music to carry you through it. I mean, I mean, as as much as the Technicolor and the acting lifts uplifts you into this world of of clashing swords and good versus evil, it's Korngold's music that, right from the opening uh, credit card, it's like, oh, I know exactly what I'm getting because it's you know, it's like uh, the Hans Zimmer of today, only you know, much better. <laughs> well, and the thing that's so enjoyable is during some of the fight sequences, uh-huh. you feel like that music is just punctuating every hit and every stroke of the blade. And that was part of what kind of turned him off to doing this mm-hmm. initially because he felt, you know, I'm this kind of musician and he had, I believe, composed some operas. Mm-hmm. And so he felt a little, I think, like, oh, I'm not sure I want to do this, but thank 
God, they yeah. convinced him or twisted his arm to do it because this score is so much fun to listen to. Well, you know, you bring up that, that the music punctuates the action, which it really does. Korngold won the Academy Award for this, but the other Academy Award, this won three, I believe, was for editing. And we have to credit the editing for mm-hmm. punk- for using the mu- marrying the music to the image so perfectly in those action scenes. Art direction as well, I believe. So... Uh... Obviously, the, the three hugest parts of this film are its resounding score, the the pace. I mean, this is this is not a film where you get bored. The yeah. editing is fantastic, and uh, and the art direction, the color we already talked about, but of course, you know, they built trees for merry men to sit in and swing from, and there's a scene where Robin Hood, you know, swings like Tarzan onto a bow of a tree, and you know, they built that. It's not a real tree, and a fake rock too. <laughs> yeah. That huge boulder, <laughs> all that stuff. The castle. And uh, the matte paintings, oh, you know, yeah. the matte paintings are, are, are magnificent. It turns a soundstage into like a huge cliff overlooking all of England it, it, and it looks just beautiful. And this really is a film that celebrates kind of these old school techniques mm-hmm. that, again, it may not be the most realistic looking thing, but it transports you to this other world in a way that CGI today just can't quite approach because it's asking you to make that leap with them it's to it like inspires your imagination to say like okay we know we're not really in England but we're gonna ask you to look at the painted grass and look at the matte paintings and totally buy into this world that's the difference I think you know when when someone you know we might sometimes sound like old curmudgeons or fogies or you know old man yells at cloud by talking about (laughs) You know, CGI is not as good as the old days, but I think for I I think I truly believe that's true, and I think you just nailed why. You know, with with these techniques, first of all, they're artistically gorgeous. I mean, those those matte paintings were hand painted with paint on glass, but they allow the audience to participate in the production with their imaginations. It's a two way communication. Whereas with CGI these days, it feels a lot more like we're going to do all the work for you. You can just sit back and let all these images go in front of you. And and that two-way communication is lost pretty significantly because we don't buy into it as We don't have to buy into it as much. Well, I think with the emphasis being kind of solely on getting it to be realistic, Mm. then you lose kind of part of the artistry of what mm-hmm. film is all about it's not strictly being about how realistic can we be you know you, I mean, you're making a leap of faith when you're watching a movie you know that's not the real world yeah. and especially with films like this to to have it have that slightly surreal quality of not being the real world is what you need to kind of enter this different kind of realm it's art and it's charm and why we have reality around us 24 7 why do we want to see it on the movie screen too it doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> i love the beauty of artifice this is something i talk about a lot on my podcast and it's not to say that verite although verite you know it has its own kind of surrealness to it it's not like they were trying to emulate the real world exactly in traditional you know verite or even you know french new wave or japanese new wave that had these really slice of life kind of stories there 
there was still a, a magical quality to those films. You go to enter a film. I don't, I don't understand this need to want to make everything have to be as real as possible. You know, even these things, although they can be fun, but a lot of these things talk about like, well, can you talk about how scientifically feasible this would be? It's like, oh, come on. You're going to the movies. (laughs) I don't give a shit. (laughs) And who needs science when you have an archer who can really split an arrow? That's true. (laughs) It doesn't hurt to have people who can actually... You know, Errol (laughs) Flynn did a a majority of his own stunts, climbing walls and jumping off of banisters and swinging from ropes and all this crazy stuff that, I mean, half Hollywood would not be allowed to do now. It doesn't hurt to have performers who can really go the mile. Errol Flynn is we mentioned is not the only actor to have ever portrayed Robin Hood. Another great one in the silent era was Douglas Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. But it's been pretty hard to find a contemporary actor who's been able to capture the essence of Robin Hood. And I don't know if it's because... <laughs> and I don't know if it's because we become too serious or something uh, or, you know, but yes, we've had Kevin Costner, we've had Russell Crowe in this drudgingly realistic Robin Hood that Ridley Scott did. If you're trying to build for the future, you must set your foundation strong. The laws of this land enslave people to its king. A king who demands loyalty but offers nothing in return. I have marched from France to Palestine and back. And I know in tyranny lies only failure. It just doesn't See, seem like they're finding the, the, the way to approach this. It's like Ridley Scott's trying to prove my point about the... I mean, who went to see Ridley Scott's Robin Hood? Not very many. It didn't do too well, I don't think. I mean, it, you don't go to Robin Hood for a history lesson. You just don't. And, uh, and I think you also bring up, you know, it feels like we can't have these characters without pathos these days. Whereas, you know, you look at Errol Flynn, forget pathos. We're just having fun. You know, and that's, you could see that in the Kevin Costner thing. He's not having fun. You wish to go home? Yeah. Then we must stop fighting amongst ourselves and face that the price for it may be dear. I, for one, would rather die than to spend my life in hiding. The sheriff calls us outlaws. But I say we are free. And one free man defending his home is more powerful than 10 hired soldiers. Or one thing that's great about the 1938 film is the the hearty belly laugh that everyone has. There's a, a great YouTube compilation of just all the like deep hearty belly laugh <laughs> belly laughs throughout the film, not just Errol Flynn, but all the characters. Well, you have Alan Hale and Eugene Pallet with a real big belly laugh. (laughs) A literal belly laugh, yeah. (laughs) Claude Rains with his kind of uh, effeminate. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you don't have that in the Kevin Costner version. I don't think the guy smiles even once. (laughs) The the only fun in the Kevin Costner film, and we we agree on this. That's true. The reason to see it and the only reason to see it is Alan Rickman chewing up the scenery as the sheriff of Nottingham. Would you prefer pain or death? Death. 
torturing. He's the one having fun. Yes. He's the one who's like, I'm not going to take this very seriously. You know, there's the brilliant spoon yeah. line. I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon. Then it begins. Why a spoon, cousin? Why not a... Because it's dull, you twit. It'll hurt more. <laughs> you should probably just make a clip of that one. But uh, he's so, you know, whose idea was to have his crazy witch in the basement thing, too? Like, I feel like Alan Rickman threw that in the script because it so does not fit into what the rest of that movie is. Running around, he's flapping his cape around, <laughs> twisting his mustache. Yeah, he's the one thing, no, the one part of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves that's really enjoyable. I wonder if, I mean, that's one of those movies that's kind of forgotten. Like, who still watches that movie? We just watched the YouTube clips of Alan Rickman. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, that's not the same as, you know, someone sitting around home, hmm, I want to watch a movie. I'll watch Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> I don't know anyone who does that. I will say there is one Robin Hood film that I adore, besides uh-huh. the one with Errol Flynn, and that's Richard Lester's wholly unappreciated Robin and Marion, which looks to Robin Hood in his later years, mm-hmm. his twilight years. And it's such an amazing, beautiful, funny, poignant, sad film. And I just wish that was shown more. Well, I've come home to you, Marion. The wars are over. I'm here. Well, it's Mother Janet now, and you can trot right back to Jerusalem. You're angry. Not with you. I haven't thought of you in 20 years. Well, give me a smile and invite me in. Come back tomorrow. I'll be gone. The sheriff's coming for me, and I'm off to prison. What happened? Explain. I haven't time. Why is the sheriff coming? What have you done? God's work. That's what I do these days. If you're in trouble, I can save you. I've nothing to be saved from. I don't want you, Robin. But you've got me. I like the way you look. More than I can save for you. So yeah, you know, Robin, that was what, that was 1976. It was still, you know, that was, well, you've got Richard Lester. He was great at, at action heroics as well. It was in that that beautiful 70s era of Hollywood, the new Hollywood, um, very Euro, European film influenced. Art film was bigger in Hollywood at that time. And so you had, you had more fun. It, it was still not as, you know, it's not Errol Flynn fun, but. Uh, it gives you something to chew on more than Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves does. But what is the connection between Robin and Marion and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Is this a trick question? No, it's Sean Connery who plays Robin and Robin and Marion and plays King Richard the Lionheart in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I've completely blocked that from my memory. (laughs) But yes, the cast of Robin and Marion is, not only do we have Sean Connery as Robin Hood, we have the lovely Audrey Hepburn Mm. as Maid Marion and Robert Shaw as Sheriff of Nottingham. And one thing that Richard Lester always did, which I don't think he was appreciated for, but he was like this history buff. And so... In the Errol Flynn Robin Hood, we have them fighting mostly with rapiers, which Mm -hmm. was something that would not come for, I forgot how long after that. They were fighting with these huge broadswords, which I had an opportunity to see when I was at the Tower of London. And those things are massive. And basically in Robin and Marion, you get a real Mm -hmm. sword fight, which is you lift it barely Take and one swing yeah. and it falls to the ground, and you then let its weight carry. And then you have to like hope that you can pick your sword up before the next guy 
slams you with his. And so it was a, a very kind of realistic. And he did this the same thing in his Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers films is he was this kind of history buff who wanted to make it realistic. So you get these castles that are drafty looking mm. and cold and, and the gross too. and the costumes yeah. and you feel like kind of the grunge of what <laughs> living in these times was like which of course the adventures of robin hood does not have yeah again i think that comes from not only lester's uh direction but just the the times another example of that that it's not richard lester is polanski's macbeth mm -hmm. uh the awesome sword fight scene between Macbeth and Macduff at the end is with those broad swords and it's just exhausting to yeah. watch them try to lift those damn things. <laughs> and you feel the weight of the armor in yeah. that one too. Uh -huh. Yeah, they're just exhausted. I mean, they're fighting for 30 seconds and they're just exhausted. My favorite Robin Hoods would have to be Douglas Fairbanks, Errol mm. Flynn, and Sean Connery. Those are the ones that for me kind of capture the essence of what that character is like. And, and the Robin and Marion one is really amazing because it is kind of looking to the end of life. It's this nice mix of upholding the legend at the same time as kind of counteracting it with a bit of reality. Mm, yeah. You know, that's one thing that we can say, like, why in the world did Ridley Scott make a Robin Hood movie in the early 2000s? The the answer is that character is one of these legends that just will always, I mean, it's just a matter of time before the next Robin Hood movie. And uh, partly it's because we had such a strong representation with starting with Douglas Fairbanks and then Errol Flynn at uh, the 1938 Errol Flynn version. But also because it's just been in our lexicon. It's been in our language for so long. It's like Superman or Achilles or or um, King Arthur. King Arthur would probably be a more appropriate analogy, but uh, it's part of what makes our identity ours. I just want it to be more fun. <laughs> well, you have a literature background, so mm -hmm. how close do any of these films come to kind of the literary roots or the folklore roots of Robin Hood? Well, you know, they all can kind of come close because there are so many versions. Um, Robin Hood is one of those characters who is largely told over campfires and little vignettes and in songs and in poetry. And, you know, there's not a real, real definitive Robin Hood. I mean, there are there are some some books, but everything's conflicting. Everything's different. It, you know, the, the, the basics are the same, which are... He was a uh, kind of a freedom fighter against a corrupt government. That's always the same. The whole rob from the rich and give to the poor, uh, the people's hero. Um, that was all, you know, that, that's because he was a peasant hero. He was the person who was told by, to the children of, of poor people. He, he was, you know, you know, don't, don't feel bad about going hungry tonight, little kids, because we have this hero who's watching over us. That's part of why he endures is, is he has that, that peasant hero quality about him. But in terms of how close it is, I mean, they're, <laughs> those are, that's all you need, right? I mean, the, you need the spirit of it. I think for me, it's always going to be Errol Flynn. I mean, when you talk about the literature roots in, in the, the epic songs, the poetry and that kind of stuff, he's always kind of this larger than life, jovial, wisecracking, jumping. Well, he had the merry men. He had the merry men who were, you know, they were walking around thieving and singing songs and jumping from trees and yeah, I think you have to go with <laughs> you have to go with the 1938 in terms of getting that feeling of of just 
uh, 18th century, 17th century storytelling down. You did mention the Mel Brooks Men in Tights, and that just reminded <laughs> me of another comic, Robin Hood, which was the very briefly seen John Cleese as oh, Robin yes. Hood in, in the Time Bandits. In Time Bandits. <laughs> Rammed. And you, you acquired all this by yourselves? Well, it was a good day, Mr. Hood. Jolly good day. Nice, isn't it? Rather. Well, I mean, what can I say? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very, very much indeed. Oh, don't mean... What? Well, I mean, it's frightfully kind of you. The poor are going to be absolutely thrilled. Uh, have you met them at all? Who? The poor? The poor? Oh, you must meet them. I just know you'll like them. Charming people. Of course, they haven't got two pennies to rub together, but then that's because they're poor. He really did a lot to undercut the Robin Hood legend. Yes. <laughs> Well, you know, you've got you've got basically, you know, what's great about that that is it's it's basically uh, um, Monty Python, right? Yeah. You've got Terry Gilliam directing John Cleese's Robin Hood, and it could that could you could take that out of that movie and put it in Monty Python TV <laughs> show, and it would not be out of place at all. But yeah, the whole idea of like the, <laughs> the robbing the rich and give to the poor, yeah, they they changed that a little bit. <laughs> Robin Hood isn't very nice. <laughs> No, but Sean Connery's in that film as well. So we have another link oh, between yeah. the whole Robin Hood. As Agamemnon. Yeah. And that, he was brilliant as Agamemnon. Oh, he, yeah. That character was so wonderful. And The Time Bandits is another film that I think is really underrated. Fantastic film that gives you this journey through history and through storytelling and through like all these literary characters and historical characters. and Ian Holm as, uh, as Napoleon. Napoleon. And of course, David Warner as Evil. Evil. Oh, he is so good. He looks constipated the whole time and angry. <laughs> All right. So now that we've been celebrating Robin Hood and talking about how wonderful it is and how great it is on the big screen, I know this is a tease to people who are not in San Diego, but if you are in San Diego. Or within a hundred miles. Or within, oh, if you really are good within a thousand miles, you can come out here. We are going to be screening this as part of our expanded Film Geeks universe, and we are going to be at the Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park showing the film 7 p.m. Friday night, July 8th, here at MOPA. And it's an opportunity to see this film as it was meant to be seen on a big screen with an audience who is ooing and aahing and gasping along with the movie. And we are planning to show some additional classic films and other films that we just love. Uh, most immediately, we are going to be paying tribute to Preston Sturges with The Lady Eve. August 13th for The Lady Eve. And this kind of represents a bit of our mission statement. What we've been known for so far, when we started the Film Geeks three years ago now, holy cat. Digital Gym Cinema, which is the small uh, micro-cinema we have here, a 46-seater, um, was looking for more diverse programming, or we were trying to force diverse programming on them. And it was more the what we're, because of the horrible imaginings thing, too, the ties, very horror-based at first. And then, you know, we kind of got diversified a little bit, but ultimately our hearts are in repertory screenings and keeping the magic of the history of cinema alive and why these films are so important. And, you know, I'll see something like, you know, The Big Gun Down or, uh, or The Searchers or something and, and wonder, you know, how many people have never seen these. And we do lots of screenings where we say, okay, raise your hand if you've never seen this before. And uh, here in San Diego, we get lots of hands in the air. And, and I think that's just criminal. Like, if 
I, uh, gosh, it feels like if we didn't do this, then these films would not be seen anymore. This is like a preservation effort. And it's not only a preservation effort of the films themselves. We want to introduce the films. We want to give background. We want to give context. And it's a preservation of the community mm-hmm. of, of appreciation, the community of people getting together to talk, to relate, to, uh, um, to experience these, uh, you know, these works of art in a community setting where you know we aren't isolated at home in front of a computer looking on our cell phone you know it's much more of a a holistic experience and I think that's what we're trying to achieve. Film is meant to be seen with a group of people in a darkened room where all your focus and attention is on the screen and seeing it on a big enough screen that you can appreciate the detail and all the work that goes into it and for some reason, one of the things that I, I remember is a story that I had heard is in terms of why watching it in a group is interesting is there was a documentary talking about Rosemary's Baby and uh, there was a scene where Roman Polanski placed Ruth Gordon just outside the door frame as you're looking down a hallway and she's making a phone call and she's sitting on a bed and you don't see her completely. You just see like her arm or something. And his cinematographer said, wait, 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 you need to put her in the center of the frame. We need to see her. And he says, no, trust me. And when they showed the film in a theater with a group of people, the moment that shot comes up, the entire audience leans to one side to kind of peer around the door frame to see where she is you and it's 2d and to me like that feeling of being in a theater where you're all kind of suddenly doing this and then catch yourself and realize oh my god you know it's just a movie I can't see around that corner but to me that kind of just encapsulates one of the reasons why film is so magical in a group experience like that yeah I mean a lot of people tend to complain when someone else laughs during a movie or someone else gasps during a movie but you know as if it's along with the film and I love that I love when we share those moments you know if we're watching something scary and the person next to me jumps in their seat I think that's exciting or or we all laugh at the same joke and and I think that's exciting too and uh it it's a you know film is it can be an intellectual exercise, but ultimately it's an emotional exercise. And, you know, this is a way, you know, a lot of us are not very comfortable with sharing emotions, but this is a way we can do that, you know, in, in, in this uh, darkened room setting where we're all going on a trip together. Well, I will call out our friend Michael Miserani, who mm-hmm. comes to horror films, loves horror films, and sitting next to him at a horror movie is the greatest experience yeah. because he gasps and jumps out of his seat and makes it twice as entertaining to watch a horror film. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you're, you're, you're looking through his eyes. It's, it's great. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and to go out on this podcast, let's go out with some more of Eric Wolfgang Korngold's music from The Adventures of Robin Hood, and I hope you will come out and join us. Get off your butts from your couches. Forget if there's sunshine outside. Come into a darkened theater here at MOPA with the twinkling stars above us and watch the magic of Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland taking us back in time to England to Robin and Marion on the big screen. Woo! Yes. Join us.
Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. You can subscribe to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast on iTunes or check out the archives at kpbs.org slash junkie podcast. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.